0: Welcome, I'm Roxanne Spring, your personal midwife after hours, celebrating and promoting wisdom and power in pregnancy, birth and beyond. To this week's episode, Roxanne Spring here with Ann Darlington. Ann Darlington began her professional life with a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Colorado in 1973 with three majors political science, sociology, and human sexuality and family planning. She received her bachelor's in 1978 and her Master's in Science in 1981 from the University of Utah. She then moved to Seattle and began her CNM career in a group practice, initially with Virginia Mason, then the Neighborhood Health Midwifery and Women's Health. She was part of of the clinical faculty and a preceptor for University of Washington. Anne was both active in the Washington State ACNM, that's American College of Nurse Midwives, local affiliate, serving as a, on the legislative committee from 1994 to 2002. She also co-founded ARMPs United of Washington State in 1992 and served on the board of directors from 1992 to 2010 legislative committee for eight years and was the president from 2007 to 2009. She was the primary author of of an ACOG ACNM award winning paper of collaborative practice between OBs and CNMs published in the obstetrics and gynecology journal. She retired in 2012 and also in retirement still serves as a president on the Friends of Haybird Ridge from 2012 to 2021. So delighted to hear from you today, and thank you for being here.
1: My pleasure.
0: I have so much that I want to hear from you. The place that I always prefer to begin though is how did the journey for you occur that drew you, what drew you to becoming a midwife? And what did that sequence look like? When did it first have the inspiration? And tell us about your pathway.
1: Well, I was probably a feminist since the age of 12. And I was always leaning towards correcting inequities uh, for women and others. Um, my dad was a doc, my mom was a nurse, you know, it was a, a, a household that believed in serving and giving back. And so that was always with me. In college, I thought I might be a lawyer and pursued uh, political science and then found that very scuffy and not enough human touch and interaction. I moved towards studies and achieved a major based in um, family planning and um, demographics and thought I could thereby get a job with Planned Parenthood. Unfortunately, the year I graduated, 1973, was the same year that Richard Nixon cut all funding domestic and international for family planning programs. And so I was unable to find a job in networks like Planned Parenthood. So I joined VISTA and served in a rural community in central Montana to help a public health nurse there start a family planning clinic that was um, a three-county catchment area. And I think that's when I knew I needed to be working with people in some way of teaching and hands-on. I was not a clinician. I was more an outreach worker, and an educator, um, and uh, I was visiting a friend back in Colorado from college, um, and it's going to sound silly, but she, we were in this beautiful log cabin um, in the high mountains above boulder colorado and her uh boxer at babies, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: something clicked for me that said how beautiful and fascinating and this i could do with women for women and combine um science and the art of hands-on and so I ruminated on that for a bit and decided that I would like to pursue that. I looked up what I could find about uh, midwifery. Uh, I knew I didn't want to do a classic medical route, much to my dad's disappointment. I was not interested in being a physician. Um, I didn't like the basic tour of that, the the, uh, hubris of that. the so I went to the University of Utah and talked to the dean, and she spent probably an hour and a half with me and helped me map out how I could convert from a Bachelor of Arts in political science with no science besides geology um, <laughs> to get a Bachelor's in Nursing and then apply to her program at the University of Utah. So we mapped out this plan, and I stayed with that with kind of climbing that ladder, which I think was really um, beneficial for me to understand the, the world of nursing in a way. It was a person, an LPN, and a two-year-old and, and it was an AD, and then another year to a bachelor's, and then working the whole time, um, and then up in, uh, applying to the University of Utah, In those days, the midwifery program required you had a year of some kind of maternal child nursing experience, Hmm. which no longer happens. But I worked for a year in uh, midwifery Delivery in uh, Price, no, I'm sorry, in Ogden, Utah. Applied, having kept up with this being all along, I'm still coming. we do and don't have around women's healthcare, health care. But I, too, had um, tuition and a stipend and was able to uh, not be a total drain on the family finances Mm -hmm. as I did the two-year master's. So uh, then the next step was get a job. Oh, I should go back a little bit and say I was very fortunate in the clinical setting so created for the students. So I... I was um, a student nurse midwife on a Navajo reservation uh. in a full-service um, home birth, clinic birth, and hospital birth service in Redding, Pennsylvania, with Tammany um, uh, birth center there. Um, I, I had a uh, location at an Air Force base outside of Salt Lake. So I, I had a real nice variety of uh, learning sites. Um, the one place we weren't allowed to uh, have any clinical experience in was the University of Utah uh, Medical Center. <laughs> that, and, you know, that's, a,
0: that, that's a perplexing situation, but I think it's occurred more than just that one spot. <laughs>
1: that's not, that wasn't just Utah, that's how it was. Because yeah. they wanted the boost for their medical students. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Even though their university had a nursing program.
0: It um, is quite amazing that you got that richness, of variety of clinical settings. Um,
1: yes, it was lovely. I was so fortunate. I mean, there was, for example, to be able to practice, uh, learn to practice um, in a novel reservation at Shiprock, there was straws drawn, and I was lucky enough to draw a straw to get in, because not everybody in my, pra- in, in my uh, class was able to to do that. Yeah. It was fabulous. Yeah. It was yeah. a the deal that the um, university had with the Indian Health Service where their um, nurse midwifery um, professors of, the, for the University of Utah, Kirkland would staff a clinic at uh, Shikra and in payback the clinic would allow students midwives to rotate through a continuous way. Um, so I spent a very hot summer in the Four Corners wow. area uh, it with eight weeks of um, exposure. Yeah, it, was, it was wonderful, um, and I was able to do my master's thesis to graduate from the program on um, anemia and postpartum hemorrhage among the Navajo.
0: Oh wow! So wonderful. So
1: that was you know. Yeah, pre- yeah, anemia, oxytocin, and post so we were looking at that. Right. Yeah, so I was very, very fortunate. Um, it was like a year or two after that that those perks uh, for students gradually disappeared.
0: Oh, that's sad. The, the stipend, the tuition, the clinical practice, mm-hmm. so sad, yeah. So, again, you have entered into this profession, or that all of that training, you have not had a baby yourself. I had a baby at that time. At that time, <laughs> no, I had no. So, no. can you tell or can you recall or what were your your first impressions at being at births when you haven't even had you know you've never been pregnant yourself and I mean what what was it like to enter in there as a as a as a brand new fledgling midwife um, and student? Well, it was. And humbling and
1: eye popping and scary. Mm. Um, I had not had a baby. I knew that I had less cred because of that. So I went to it with some humility. Mm. And I opened myself to learn from those women. with gratitude and an open mind and heart, so I, I think that definitely there's value in having done that. Um, but I think it also led me to feel I needed to gain respect in other ways, mm-hmm. and to um, to learn mm-hmm. to just soak it up. Um, when I did have a baby many years later. I thought about, so does this change how I behave as a nurse midwife? life? Mm-hmm. And I realized that I wasn't saying anything different to my clients. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was behaving differently in labor and birth or providing birth control, whatever, whatever the thing was. But my experience of it was altered by, oh yeah, I remember how bad that hurt. <laughs> I, or I remember how difficult that choice was mm-hmm. for that. I, too, I lucked out and never went through that either, but um, I tried to always be in the moment with her and be vicariously experiencing and learning without losing objectivity, which is a real challenge. I mean, I, I think if I uh, had a really difficult birth before, I became a midwife I might be curled up in the corner with cramps instead of <laughs> it, <you know?
0: laughs> I think it's very courageous well, six children you had cramps baby you were unbelievable
1: many many times when you had a baby and uh, I would be very open and say I have not right what what would you say I should be doing that I'm not doing for you or how can I do this better mm-hmm. um, But but it was intriguing to me that I really didn't change my behaviors, my experience from within, but as, you know, the clinician, the provider,
0: this woman. I do believe it is a calling. You know, I really don't think that people, and I've watched some people that have gone through lots of training and then they get to the other side and it is, it's just so demanding. I mean, it really has to occur as something you are committed to doing or called to do.
1: One of the wonderful things about the world of midwifery and especially nurse midwifery is there are many ways to practice. If you find that you're um, just not there uh, relishing the, the experience of labor and birth, you can do so many other things and and that was one of the reasons that i chose that path of nurse midwifery mm-hmm. and instead of um, other paths for midwifery um, um, what used to be called back then granny midwives um, you know there weren't licensed midwives other than i as i remember when i was looking into it there was uh, in new mexico and not yet here i don't think mm-hmm. Well, there was, as it turns out, but not well known. Yeah. And I think that was another wonderful part of uh, Susie Myers' history that exactly. right. I got to listen to yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was, that was uh, job opportunities were going to be greater for me mm-hmm. as a nurse midwife, mm-hmm. or so I believe. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, and that's probably true. Mm-hmm. I yeah. do have known people who did better as educators or as yes. researchers than. Than
0: they did hands on. uh, Yeah, that is the truth about why I entered into nurse midwifery as well, is because you have a lot more, I called it a greater sphere of influence. You had a lot less uh, roadblocks. And you can fall back on your RN if you Mm -hmm.
1: just can't get a job. Mm -hmm. Plenty of speed bumps and roadblocks but I think not so many as for people in other
0: versions of the world of midwifery of practice. Correct, yes. So I know that in your journey, there's so much to uncover here. Let's get to where you came to Seattle, and you started practicing, and essentially you practiced with the same group of people, but tell us a yeah. little bit about how that changed. Um, Carol Verga came to
1: Seattle uh, in 1979, having been recruited by um, the Board of Directors at Virginia Mason Hospital to start a nurse midwifery practice. And that's its own special story, but basically the Board had decided to discontinue obstetrics. The numbers were too low. And there was one woman on the board named Nancy Friedrich. And she said, hold on, what about nurse midwives? And so she promoted the notion of nurse midwifery and thought maybe that's a way to increase um, birth numbers at Virginia Mason. So Carol Berger got recruited out of Alaska to start a practice and she'll tell you the story that she started with a yellow legal pad and a pencil and the brilliance of Carol's understanding how systems work she's been direct with nursing and catch camp I, I think that was her prior one of her prior things she knew that she wanted to create a group practice model with shared call and shared clinic uh, time and that she wanted to be a department of its own and even though she was a department of one human being when it started she sat at the same table at the heads of departments of all with all the guys all the departments across that medical center and so she immediately had uh the ear of many people and the status that one rarely finds when one tries to get free into, or into a hospital. So the fact that they asked her, she didn't go begging for privileges, was very fortuitous. But the brilliance of how she set it up was also groundwork for a, a practice that remains successful, really to this day. Um, the, the, the group uh, birthed only in hospital Um, We were at one point as many as 12 nurse midwives covering both uh, clinic at VM as well as multiple community clinics throughout Seattle. That was an arrangement that Puget Sound Neighborhood Health Centers made with Virginia Mason so that their providers could be under a legal umbrella for liability insurance as well as a place to birth their clients. So we had nurse midwives out in the clinics and at VM and coming together initially with separate calls for the two groups and and ultimately blended. Didn't have to twelve. We ended up with I think, six. Um, full time equivalent. I super benefited from being the first time they took a new grad into the practice. I was the first mm-hmm. time at Virginia Mason there number four midline. And I couldn't have asked for mm-hmm. better mentors. Carol was a taskmaster and asked as much of her um, colleagues' employees as she did of herself, which was a lot. You know, I initially worked 60 to 80 hours a week, but I learned hard and fast, and she was a fabulous educator. So that turned out to be a very smart idea, to start out in a place with midwifering mentors And I ended up staying there until that practice was told, we're closing OB again. So my group was then left with a choice of dispersing or somehow staying together as a group practice and create our own business, go to another uh, hospital base, or work something out with the community clinic system and it turned out very surprising to us we were a desirable commodity (laughs) you know virginia mason was the first place in seattle that had a nurse midwifery practice at the same time that carol virgo was starting at vm kathy carr was starting um at on the east side at Mm -hmm. group health Mm -hmm. so kathy's got another wonderful set of stories Mm -hmm. to share um Definitely a founding mother during the yes. 70s and 80s. She had to uh, end the Virginia Mason Birth Center because they closed that. We ended up birthing in an alliance with Group Health, our practice, including the doctors and nurses, and most of the nurses and and uh, all the midwives from DM at Group Health at yep. Capitol Hill Campus. Family Beginnings that's the name of that in hospital birth center. Few years later, Virginia Mason said, We're just done. Mm-hmm. So then we became employees directly of Puget Sound Neighbor Health Centers. They renamed themselves, thank goodness, because that's such a mouthful of it's so Neighbor Care Health. Yeah. Um, so at that point, we had mostly folks on Medicaid, which is pretty classic for most of the births in the state are on Medicaid, but this was through several community clinics throughout the Seattle area. We each would work at one or two of the community clinics for women's health care, prenatal OB, I mean, GYN, family planning, um, postpartum, all of that, um, full service, we call mm-hmm. it. Uh, we did that in our clinic or two and then took call as a group. So it was not midwifery in its purest form of Mm -hmm. creating a a deep and meaningful relationship with your one midwife. We did what we could to always have open houses and invite everybody from all the clinics to come and um, meet all the midwives. And we worked really hard to be interchangeable. It's not like if somebody says, yes, that's in your birth plan, and then you're in labor and somebody else is sorry. I don't do it that way. We would never do that to anybody. Very mm-hmm. really careful about that. Um, but it was a hospital based system. Mm-hmm. It was shift work of 12 to 24 hour shifts. I, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciated that I could have a life outside of midwifery mm-hmm. that kept me balanced and also experience birthing with women from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Literally clients or local people who are needing that uh, healthcare service system Um, and literally immigrants from everywhere. Anywhere there was war or famine, that would be the pulse of folks that I would be ending up with in labor and birth and in my clinic. So I travel the world um, Mm. on any given shift, you know, I would be with a person from Vietnam in the early 80s, and Cambodia, I mean just follow the path of human migration from hard times, they would be within a year or so, they would be among my clientele. Yeah. So I would have local, let's say a local African-American woman, in, uh, that I would be caring for, but maybe in another room at a different point in the labor, I would have a woman from Somalia with an interpreter. That was rich.
0: That is rich. Very,
1: very <laughs> fulfilling. Yeah. That was um, that was really, really beautiful.
0: Mm.
1: Um, you know, vicariously again learning about birthing, but this time from all kinds of cultures.
0: Mm. Yeah. And
1: trying to honor within that birth site. Those traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I learned to figure out if I was working with an interpreter because the woman wasn't English speaking would be to also figure out who in this room is empowered to make decisions about this woman's care, and how can I be culturally sensitive and also give her that power? Mm-hmm. Because that wow. doesn't happen in every culture. Let me say. Yeah, so that was cool. That mm-hmm. was, like, I'm back to my bachelor's studying politics and sociology and demographics, right? I mean, as far as life, you can tell it with hindsight, and it looks perfectly linear. Life course. And <laughs> with a politically active, feminist sensitive midlife. No, it was, you know, it evolved, as we all do. One whole thing.
0: Right, their seeds were always there, and it grew into this great, magnificent tree, if you would. That is wonderful. Now, I do happen to know that in addition to practicing and all that you were doing, that you were actually still very politically involved. And I wanna hear a little bit about that, too, because that's how I know you. I mean, I just know you as, one of the one of the nurse midwives, one of the nurse practitioners, that actually made history happen, and it needs to be told here. So, thank you for being here well, to tell it.
1: What an intro!
0: Thank you, Lexi. You're welcome.
1: Uh, once I kind of settled into getting the green out, um, I became involved with the founding of the statewide nurse practitioner organization called ARNPs United, so ARNP is Advanced Registered Nurse Practitioner, that's our title in this state. Um, and the group, I think that's starting about 1992, but we were purposeful about increasing access to care for the citizens of Washington. and and as we've just been saying, immigrants to our state, and enhancing the ability for nurse practitioners to provide that care. One of the big impediments to independent full practice for nurse practitioners was limitations on what is called prescriptive authority, the ability of licensure to write prescriptions for medications. And... The prescription, of prescriptive authority was very limited in those days to um, things like non scheduled drugs, meaning nothing that smacks of anything like um, opioids, pain relievers. Uh, the, the closest to that that was allowed was um, cough syrup with uh, coating, but you couldn't write for coating we could write for birth control pills. So that was a big barrier to care and it was foolishness because our clients still needed those things. Um, And so we would have to have a relationship with a physician who would write the prescriptions for our clients that we could then give. And there were practices to facilitate that that were end runs and were really wrong, like doctors would sign a whole pad of prescription, you know, there were on pads then, this was before electronic records, uh, prescription pads, sign every one with his or her name and give the nurse practitioner that pad so that she doesn't or he didn't have to come to the doctor every single one. Well, that is a recipe for disaster and certainly for inefficiencies. We were allowed to write prescriptions uh, limited for a while there to just a three-day supply so that the person could like leave the hospital with some meds but then be well enough somehow to go get one written by a doctor. So there was all kinds of things wrong. And the biggest piece that was wrong with that is there was a separation of responsibility for prescribing and authority to prescribe. The doctors were very concerned about what they called vicarious liability. They felt like if they didn't have nurse practitioners under their thumb for supervision and for prescription writing, that the nurse practitioner would make a mistake and the doc would get sued. And the concept I was trying to push was you won't get sued if it's not your authority that's being misplayed. Um, So it took 17 years of effort to change the laws in Washington State to create um, full prescriptive authority. We knew, I learned an important lesson then, that you should strive for incremental change and get what you can, and then come back at it mm-hmm. rather than throw it all on the wall, push really hard for change, and get rejected as too radical. You'll get there in the end, but you got to go bit by bit, chill people out in the world of legislation and politics, and um, get them used to change that seems less and less threatening as it becomes more and more established to so with Obamacare, for example. Go incrementally. And so we went with this little tiny example of that in Washington State where we were able to get a compromise bill through the state legislature that allowed for a joint practice agreement with a physician. So if a nurse practitioner had a written agreement, a one-time thing in paper, that, that, that there was an available consultant who was committed to helping you if you needed help with prescribing then you're legal to write full prescriptions what I'm talking about now is for pain, re, pain mm-hmm. relief everything except, except schedule 1 which like is heroin mm-hmm. right so we went with that and at this point Aaron United of Washington had a lobbyist Mm-hmm. We always put our money, and ACNM, the local chapter of nursing blue frame, always donated to that fund. Mm-hmm. They saw what was valuable in that, and I always asked them to. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, that takes a lobbying. So the lobbyists that we worked with, we created this joint practice agreement, and we told everyone, including the legislators, we'll be back. Yeah. This is not our acceptable final endpoint. And the following year, the year after that, I think it was under two years, I think, was a time when the opportunity arose. The doctors and the lawyers were fighting over tort reform, and they were at each other's throats, and they were no longer looking at the nurse practitioners, and we slid in our <laughs> bill, abolishing the joint practice agreement. Mm-hmm. It passed quietly and easily, and there we were.
0: There we were.
1: Change the law. Yes. So that allowed uh, independent practice for But you
0: were also active in ACNM. And part of uh, that was the liaison piece? Is-
1: it, it was largely that. I mean, mm-hmm. I was very interested, again, back to the maybe-I-want-to-be-a-lawyer days. Um, mm-hmm. the, I was the chair of the Legislative Committee yes. for the local chapter of the Midwives for several years and i worked with heather bradford yes she came as a she practiced a couple of years in pennsylvania and came to washington state so she and i were joined at the hip and i i was um super appreciative of having another enthusiastic political midwife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's very good and and she ended up staying with that track for quite a while too um i measured her some well, she brought her own high energy and brilliance and, and savvy.
0: Yeah. To to that task. So that was a it was a wonderful relationship with Heather. Yeah. Yes, I, I do We got a lot done. Yes, you yeah, indeed that's true. And it was it was really inspiring to be part of a chapter that was really things were really happening. I think it was setting actually a precedent for a lot of other places. Was it not?
1: It might have been, yeah. I think Washington State's pretty good at that.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah mean, I do too. You
1: know, we're, we're kind of stuck up here in the northwest corner, but we're definitely an innovative people. And uh, I think it's a blend of west coast progressive thinking, but more... Um, seaworthy and rural
0: and,
1: uh, you know, climate different kind of place. I'm, I'm happy
0: to, to be here. Yeah, and there's yeah, another, uh, well, at least you were mentioning that since, or, you know, actually prior to retirement, there was another fascinating, another aspect of very common here in the Pacific Northwest of environmentalism, that you pursued a path with. Tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: Uh, well, we had a cabin that we shared with another uh, family. We've had that since 95. Uh, right in the town of Index, which is a town of, I think, 120 permanent residents. It's, it's a um, beautiful town on the north of the Skycomish River, and... Part of its beauty is it's surrounded by the granite walls that are the famous index climbing walls, and on uh, the north side and on the uh, south side across the river is Haybrook Ridge, which is this lovely, long, sweeping um, ridge that ends up in the uh, Cascade Mountains, um, mm-hmm. including uh, Mount Bering and mm-hmm. number number of mountains. Yeah. But straight across from our cabin, which has a little lot on the river, um, there's Haber Creek Ridge. And right behind Haber Creek Ridge is this mm-hmm. Alps looking fabulous view of Mount Index mm-hmm. with a big snow covered cirque draining down into valleys mm-hmm. and Mount Persis. So this is these are the mountains you see as you come up highway too. Mm. From town, you see them as your personal backdrop. I mean, it really <laughs> looks like a movie set. rain mm. um, I mean, it's not cloudy and rain. And so what happened to the townsfolk is they uh, heard um, my friend Sue Cross in town also on the local school board, and she happened to across some paperwork that said, The owners of the property um, of the logs, the trees, on Haybrook Ridge intend to clear cut it. The Mm -hmm. trees are mature, and they they harvest trees in the Northwest like crops, and so the logging company fully expected to just do it, and that the locals would be glad for the work. Not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe a couple. But, you know, that would have devastated the view. Mm -hmm. It would have left raw uh, clear-cut instead of a forest that itself over over 100 years had grown back from Mm clear-cutting with logging uh, mills and companies on both sides of the ridge um, had filled in naturally, no um, things pre-planted, you know, a monoculture of trees planted after clear cuts these days. In the old days, nothing happened. They used the trees and left. Mm-hmm. And so it's filled in over that hundred years to a natural forest. Now it's going to be cut again. The locals were not up for that. And I joined the group within a few months of them saying we have to do something. And to, to try to not make this too long a story, basically... Uh, we formed a five hundred one c three nonprofit. Mm-hmm. We um, enlisted the help of the Cascade Land Conservancy, which is now a much bigger organization known as Uh, But we were like small potatoes, you know. <laughs> a, a small town needed to come up with one point three million dollars <laughs> to buy it was the value of the logs. Of the, I'm sorry, of the trees to become logs mm-hmm. that we. Created the value of the land, so we, we worked our tuitions off and, and you know did everything from hoedowns to um, booths and at various fairs, including the local index um, summer fair, and um, we, we made a hundred thousand in a year. Mm. But that was not near the mark. <laughs> we asked for more time, and the company said yes. We'll give you another year to see if you can come up with the money. But there's a particular thing about the alder trees on the ridge that they were also going to clear cut. They go rotten if they get past a certain age and they fall over. So that was very time intense. Mm. Um, in that year, a miracle happened. And mm. an anonymous donor gave the money he made when his mother passed away and he sold her house. We gave a half a million dollars to the Friends of Hibber Bridge. Mm-hmm. And now we had half the purchase price. Mm-hmm. And now Cascade Land Conservatory saw us as a really viable pursuit. And so we partnered with Nahumash County Parks and Recreation to say, we'll give you half the purchase price if you could come up with the other half and you take on this land as public land in perpetuity. Mm. We did not, uh, this little tiny group of folks in index, uh, a board of volunteers um, did not want the liability or the responsibility mm-hmm. for owning a park. And they said yes. And, and so conservation futures money from the county um, created the purchase book. The problem was there was no access to the property from Highway 2 with any option for safe parking, more from the road, the Index Greenway Road from Highway 2 into Index. So we kept working with the county and ultimately bought three properties on the Index Greenway Road right across from the, the bridge across the river to town. And then we were able to build trails. Mm-hmm. So we partnered with Washington Trails Association mm-hmm. Snohomish County Parks and Rec, Friends of Haybrook Ridge, um, and got trailed in. <laughs> and so we have one fabulous, you know, it's 1.7 miles up uh, to the top of the ridge with a kicking view of Mountain Index, Bridewell Falls, the whole valley. We later bought another 10 acres with a beautiful viewpoint, and we're now in process of building a um, shelter there called the Memory Shelter where you can be away and look at Mm. Canyon Falls um, and the valley and think about people who you've lost in your life Mm. um, as a place for memories um, and also just have a great picnic spot Mm. Um, and we're now also building an ADA compliant trail off the parking lot that will be done in another year or two. Um, very hard to build those ADA trails. Mm. High specificity around making a trail that is accessible by two wheelchairs passing.
0: Oh other. wow, that's that yeah. is.
1: And so that's in a beautiful forest. So anyway, um, my my role there was much more uh, active when I took on the role as president of that board. Mm-hmm. And that was possible because I retired from the periphery in 2012. Went on a vacation having told someone, yeah, I'd be, I'd be willing to consider being the president. Came back and I was the president. <laughs> and I sp- stayed with that for the next eight years. Yeah, I just turned out over to someone else this year. And I've remained on the board and then liaised on to the common parks and rec to continue working on
0: mm-hmm. developing the park. Uh, those are just incredible accomplishments all the way around. Uh, Some, somebody was
1: flying on this rock, and um, yeah. you know, you make your own luck, but you also just get lucky.
0: yeah well yeah it's true and all as my mom would say all that you send into the lives of others comes right back into your own so and it's just that it's just that beautiful so if you were to assess now where we're at um in terms of midwifery in terms of us here in the united states And if you were to look at all the progression that has been made during your career, what do you foresee? What would make your heart delighted in terms of progression for this next piece? What would be the next big thing that you would like? Yes.
1: (laughs) Well, what I foresee and what would make my heart sing are unfortunately probably different things. Mm-hmm. But um, I I would love to see um, health care for all, universal health care. Um, I think the big problem with American health care is that we are disparate hearts that come down to profit centers or private enterprise, capitalistic approach to money is the goal, not quality of care. And so... Until that changes, I don't think all of our dreams can happen. Um, I consider healthcare a natural right of human beings, and I'm embarrassed and ashamed of our country that we're so far from the mark, despite how much we spend. In my vision for Women's healthcare and midwifery and uh, the world of birthing. Um, I would love to see an integrated system that gives all choices possible to all women and families. And I would like them to be able to choose a safe option um, that would be including, including community care. Um, home births, out of hospital birth centers, in hospital birth centers, tertiary hospital birthing, meaning uh, high risk levels. I mm-hmm. would love to see a totally integrated system. Um, I did try to create something like that um, when I was in practice working with licensed midwives to have a transfer program. Um, where I was at from the beginnings at Group Health, um, from home birth midwives to in-hospital midwives, so that it would be less scary and more successful transfers from home birth to hospital. The issue of liability came up yet again, and that fell apart. Um, I made some good friends in the Allem community, and um, I do hope it happens. I do hope it happens. I would like to see midwife to midwife, and within hospital collaborative care, which was another one of my passions when I was working, um, how to collaboratively work between midwives and obstetricians, which was a paper that I co-authored, and it was the primary author, and yeah, that's another story, but I finally got published in a major um, uh, journal, so that was just before I retired and part of why I did. I could.
0: That's <laughs> awesome. Which um, journal is it published yes. in?
1: Uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology. It was in 2011. I retired the next year. But it was about collab- collaborative practice and how to design that between OBs and midwives. How we did it at, at group health and um, how to do it well. You know, independent practice, know your scope of practice, um, be able to co-manage between the midwife and the doctor so that the client doesn't move to the primary person Uh, and knowing when you need help and having Mm -hmm. it readily available because it's not you that needs help it's the client who needs help Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to keep that a smooth um, practice very good doing that there also allowed us to be a prime center for vaginal birth after cesarean which was another thing I worked on and lectured about and stuff. Um, I, dig- I digress there. So my, my image would be all those things could happen. The C-section mm-hmm. rate would be way lower mm-hmm. than it is. It's shaped way like high in this country. Mm-hmm. And we would break that link between profit motive and healthcare, and have a smooth transition through any level of care that a woman could safely choose because choice is really what that's all about. That's mm-hmm. so
0: what it should be about in every facet of our care. And it is intended to be in, and we got to keep looking on that. Yes, we do. <laughs> we need to continue to have conversations that give people an opportunity to consider things from more than one p- point of view. Uh, it is true, and you and I were discussing it, that midwives, nurse midwives in hospitals, are much more prevalent, like over. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah, so I we. It's
1: become the thing. It's become a marketing piece, and, and sadly, that again is back to how do we generate more income? It is well, people want midlife so we better have them. Women deserve midlife so let's make that happen. I, I mean, it's not that black and white. There's some really good people out there who are looking at it for all the right reasons. Uh, right. You know, I, I, we talked about the story of, of the day that Family Beginnings at Capitol Hill Group Health was closing. And through the leadership of Tanya Sorensen, the director of perinatal medicine at Swedish, in like a day, probably a week, but immediately they went from, I think, one nurse midwife sort of kind of had privileges at Swedish to 22 because the nurse midwives from the group practice that was still together from the Carol Virga days, um, which now neighbor care health midwives, they all moved to Swedish Mm -hmm. uh, downtown, the flagship. And Mm -hmm. the group health nurse midwives all moved. And others who had privileges, like Sally Adenson at group health, also moved. And so suddenly there's this influx and culture shock of nurse midwifery coming to a tertiary medical center um that wouldn't be my cup of tea for where i wanted to practice on like way lower key than that but it could be that that could be the end point at that tertiary level and then build it back down to Mm -hmm move it from home with through, as we discussed earlier. So maybe.
0: Yeah, well, some of people that are looking at it are going, well, if we had a route that was more singular, we would all be in more unity because unity is something that everybody comes from a little bit different perspective. I have heard that in Canada, that a person will do out of hospital births as well as hospital births. And just that, as part of the training, would open up a lot more uh, camaraderie, I believe. If in our orientation and in our training, we actually got to see birth in the variety of settings so that it isn't so fearful.
1: Yeah, and I I lucked out with that.
0: Yes, you did.
1: That setting in Reading, Pennsylvania taught me that early on. I think you're right about Canada. That would be worth looking into. So I'm just recalling things I've heard too. But my understanding is that you don't get to not do home as a right. hospital midwife. I, I think it's just part of it. Yes. And how is that beautifully it's good. That would be definitely worth looking at more closely. And again, you know, that whole universal healthcare piece. right? Very different candidate to the US.
0: And the UK, and uh, and all the other parts of the world. world, Yeah, let's look at the rest of the world. The rest of the world that actually does things with better results. Let's look at them. And midwives are. That's right, they're the primary, first-stop care providers. And it makes all kinds of sense. You
1: know, multiple studies have shown us percent of the care needed in, uh, in OB, in well-women's care, can be done by m- nurse midwives and midwives and others probably. the the places that have copied their Western style, i.e. the American style of medicine, have lost something. I mean, to higher tech rather than listening and to a higher touch. I mean, that sounds kind of uh, woo-woo. But no, I don't.
0: It. It's not woo woo. It actually is a an accurate depiction. Of yeah. tech has not really ever demonstrated itself to be superior. It just doesn't. It the tech in, in and of itself. I mean, we can we can have the use of technology. I'm not saying we should abandon it, but it cannot yeah. replace the advantage of well, the others. It's, it's overused. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh,
1: for, People trained today learn how to do an ultrasound to establish a due date. If a woman's paying attention and her midwife or her, um, provider is listening and gets a really solid history and talks to her about her cycle and learns more about all of that, you can, you can get to an accurate due date. If you've trained your hands, mm-hmm. as Carol Durga trained mine, to evaluate growth, you can get there. Um, but there are times when technology is oh, you know, immensely valuable.
0: Yeah, I, that's you know, just right when we want to have it. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's only when you want to yes, have it.
0: Yes, exactly. But it doesn't
1: make money
0: that way. Much. Yes, that's no, way. it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. What you'd like to leave us with?
1: Well, I applaud you for gathering these histories. I am appreciative to be part of it. It's, it's kind of odd to think of oneself as... Historic. <laughs> <I> don't <laughs> use that word <laughs> um, because you just live your life. Yes. And um, I, I hope that we'll continue
0: this, this uh, effort. Well, thank you for that. I do, I do love the idea of writing. Uh, there you go. And, and there you go. That
1: isn't cold, and you yeah. Got it. I, I think that
0: would be very cool. You know, as we age
1: out of being able to
0: squat with a woman for hours on end, maybe <laughs> yeah, yeah. we we should be sitting and writing. Yeah, exactly. Well, bringing it, bringing it all out for all of us. It's um, it's really important. Um, the the beauty of everything that you've brought to being a midwife, being an advocate, being politically involved. And that way of acknowledging making progress is making progress. And collaborative care is the model of care has to be tended to. And you were able to bring these things out and then to even what you've done in the way of the community effort, it's for us all. That powerful work is just very inspirational, and I'm very grateful. Thank you for this rich time.
1: Oh, you're most welcome, here. thank you for your work.
0: Thank you all for joining us here on Midwife After Hours. Another special thank you to Ann Darlington. It is amazing to have someone that has done the political process in our country to enrich the lives of many by giving nurse midwives the opportunity to have prescriptive authority, advocating for us all. It was a rich episode, and I'm very thankful. I'm also thankful to my producer, the love of my life, Terry Spring, and I want to invite you all to tune in next week, a bit of a preparation. This is going to be a show that is going to deal with a social topic that really needs to have some light shed on it. It's about intimate violence. I have an amazing midwife and she has both personal experience and really worked hard to advocate for all people in understanding more and finding answers. It'll be a great episode, and I will look forward to seeing you there. Also, comments are welcome. Please send them right along to midwifeafterhours.com. And listen and tune in right here on valley1049.org. Have a safe and happy 4th.